The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which Thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I'm hoping that this class is going to get recorded. There's no guarantee. Florence is not here today, and there is no substitute apparently, and I have pushed the button. (laughs) And that's all I can say. Um, We'll see. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's the gremlins in the system or whatever, because, of course, we've got a very touchy subject to discuss today from Matthew chapter 19. It is the Lord's teaching on the subject of divorce. And uh, as I said, I realize that that is a delicate subject. I'm going to try to handle it with as much grace as possible. Uh, But it is a word that we need to hear today in our culture, and it's one that we need to hear in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 19. And let's go ahead and read through the first 12 verses. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Every time I officiate at a wedding, there comes a point in the service when I say, those whom God hath joined together, let no man put us under, or a woman put us under, thank you. (laughs) But the problem, of course, is that men and women are putting us under. I don't think it comes as any big surprise to you that we are living at a point in history in American history at least, when divorce has become prevalent in our society. It's been said that 50% of all marriages in America today end in divorce. And this would include those marriages of people who claim to be Christians. In other words, we're really not doing any better than the secular culture is doing. What is interesting, however, is that there was a poll that came out just last year done by the Pew Research, and they discovered, interestingly enough, that for the first time in over a decade, the divorce rate has dropped in America. Now, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? The divorce rate for the first time in decades has fallen in American culture today. But before you start popping the champagne corks and applying you need to be aware of the fact that while there has been a decrease in the divorce rate in recent years, and this is due, interestingly enough, in large measure to the millennials, the largest generation in this nation's history, while there has been a decrease in the divorce rate in recent years, there has been, listen to this, a corresponding rise in cohabitation. A 29% increase among millennials in cohabitation, which is to say they are living together rather than getting married. So, sure enough, few are getting divorced, but then again, fewer are getting married. 
And why is that? Well, you ask most millennials today, and the answer they give is that what they have seen of marriage is not all that impressive to them. They have seen their parents go through divorce, and they have had to deal with that. Uh, Many of you, perhaps, have come from homes in which parents divorced. But this is particularly true of the younger generation. Uh, Many of them have come from broken homes and they look at this and they they see the tragedy that it's brought to the husband and to the wife, the mother and the father, and in particular to the children. And they said, just like the disciples say in this passage, in a cynical sort of way, if that's what marriage is all about, I don't want to have any part of it. And so they're not getting married. They're not getting divorced, but they're simply living together. In a former age, we would have called that living in sin. But since we've sort of abolished sin in American culture today, they're just living together, cohabitating. What I want to do today is I want to approach this whole subject of marriage and divorce, and I want to approach it not from a legalistic standpoint. I want to approach it first and foremost from God's vantage point. Sometimes when we read a passage like this in which Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if a man divorces his wife for any reason except for marital unfaithfulness, He causes her to commit adultery and he commits adultery. Well, when you approach it from that point of view, oftentimes what happens is that people feel as though this is an excuse for the preacher to talk down to them. This is an opportunity for the preacher to sort of browbeat people. And that was not Jesus' intention at all. Jesus makes it very clear. He has not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to do what? To save the world. So I think if we're going to understand Jesus' words in the way that He intended them to be taken, we need to approach this from not the idea that Jesus is hard on divorce, but we need to approach it from the idea that Jesus is high on marriage. And that requires us to go back in time a little bit and take a look at marriage from God's perspective. Not from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. And when you do that, a number of things follow. First of all, when you look at marriage from a biblical point of view and from God's point of view, one of the things you immediately discover is that marriage is not a bad thing. The disciples, when they heard what Jesus had to say, in a cynical sort of way, said, well, if that's the way it is with a husband and a wife, it's probably better not to get married. And that's exactly what the millennials are saying today. But actually, when you look at the Scripture, one of the things you quickly discover, almost immediately, at the very beginning of the biblical record, is that God views marriage as a good thing. In fact, here's a revelation. Marriage is not some sort of social construct. It is not something that man invented. Marriage, listen to this, was God's idea. Marriage was God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. It is the first great human institution. You go back to the book of Genesis, and it was God who presided over the first wedding in the Garden of Eden. God established marriage. He officiated at the first wedding. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, we say in the marriage service, honored this way of life by His presence and His first miracle where? At a wedding in Cana, of Galilee. So Jesus' first miracle took place in, of all places, a wedding context where he transformed the water into wine. And in so doing, we're told Jesus adorned this manner of life. So the first thing we need to understand when it comes to marriage is that regardless of what the culture may say about marriage, regardless of the jaded view that people may have about marriage today, the reality is, is that marriage, according to the Bible, was God's idea And God pronounced it to be a good thing. You'll notice that throughout the Scriptures. If you go back to Genesis, one of the things you'll notice is that when God creates things, after each successive day of creation, He pronounces a benediction on it. God looked on what He had made and He said, It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. But then there comes a point in the story of creation where God looks on everything that He has made and He finds something that is not good. And he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, I will create for him a helper. So we need to understand right from the beginning that marriage is not something that 
mankind as created. It is not simply a social contract. It is God's idea. And God pronounced it to be a good thing. This comes out in the wedding service. Now listen to how the service of the Book of Common Prayer puts it. These are the very first words that the officiant speaks at the wedding service. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of God to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman in holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of a marriage was established by God when? In creation. At the very beginning. And our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by His presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and His church and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. So the Scripture commends it to us, to all people. It goes on, the union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Therefore, marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, deliberately, and in accordance with the purposes for which it was instituted by God. So marriage is God's idea. God sees it as a good thing. And what's most important is that Paul says that marriage actually represents that most important of all relationships, Christ's relationship to His church. So marriage is really designed by God to be a means of evangelism. So marriage is a good thing, at least as far as God is concerned. Here's something else that follows. If God created marriage, and He created marriage at the beginning... What that means is that marriage is the very first of all the human institutions. And because it is the first of all the human institutions, it is therefore foundational for society. Marriage, at least as the Bible presents it, because it is God's idea laid down at the beginning, because God says it is not good for man to be alone, that means that marriage is foundational for the working of society or the working of society. Now think about that for a moment. The earliest education that was done, was done where? In the home. Before we had schools, colleges, universities, academies, seminaries, anything like that, education starts where? It starts at the home. That lays the foundation for everything that follows. A children can't go off to kindergarten until there are certain things that they learn at home. All education begins at home where parents taught their children to walk, to speak, to work, to dress. And it's out of that foundational education in the home that all the other great institutions of higher learning that we are familiar with came. They were born out of the home, schools, academies, colleges, universities. Think about it. The first health care takes place where? In the home. Where mothers and fathers care for their children when they're sick. And it's out of that care that they receive in the home that all the other great institutions arise. Clinics, hospices, hospitals, and so forth. But the very first education, the very first medical care, it takes place where? In the home where mothers and fathers care for their children. The same is true when it comes to government. A father's rightful authority in the home at the very beginning was the first form of government that the world has ever known. And out of that has come all the other forms of government that we are familiar with. First, the patriarchal forms of government, yes. But then monarchical forms of government, which evolved from that. And eventually, what? democratic forms of government that we have today. But they all started with what? The sense that there was an authority in the home. And the first authority that children were ever exposed to was what? Not the federal government. The first authority they were ever exposed to was the authority of their what? Their parents. 
So children learn about education in the context of the home because of the mother and the father. They learn about health care, caring for their bodies in the home from their mothers and their fathers. And they learn about government, authority, living under authority in the context of their fathers. And they learn about government, authority, living under authority in the context of the home. So you see, marriage is foundational. All of these other great institutions come out of that one. Established by God at the very beginning in creation. Now two things follow from this. If God created marriage, created it good, as the first great human institution, foundational to society, then if marriage declines, what does it mean? It means all of these other human institutions will by consequence decline as well. That's the first thing that follows. All of these other institutions will decline as well. The second thing that follows is this. Those, whether they're institutions or individuals, who contribute to this decline ultimately sin against God. Because marriage was God's idea. So you see, that's how God looks at marriage. It is a good thing. It is good for the individuals because it's not right for a man to be alone, but it's also good for the well-being of society as a whole. And if the foundation goes, what goes along with it? This is how Jesus put it in Luke chapter 6. He said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house upon a ground without foundation. When the steam broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In that parable, the parable is not about anything more than the foundation. And the way that Jesus tells that parable, what you've got are two builders... They're both building the same house. They've got the same design. The same architect designed them. They've got the same builder. The only difference between the house that stands and the house that falls is the foundation upon which it has been built. That's the only difference. And the foundation upon which our Western society has been built is the institution of marriage. What happens then if the foundation is removed. That's the question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, I want you to understand today that the foundations are being destroyed in Western culture. And they are being destroyed by a number of forces and factors. First of all, Western culture and the foundation of marriage is being destroyed in large measure because of satanic attack. If the world is going to be under assault from the enemy and the enemy wants to be successful in defeating the world, what is he going to do? He's going to look for that which is foundational. If you can remove the foundation, what happens? The whole thing falls apart, doesn't it? That's one of the reasons why I think Paul... And his letter to the Ephesians talks the way that he does. Keep your finger there in Matthew and flip to the right to Ephesians for just a moment. Now, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul is dealing with some very basic relationships. And you'll see that in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. He deals, first of all, with the relationship between wives and husbands. He does this in a very logical way. Wives and husbands, in chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Then, in chapter 6, he deals with the relationship between what? Children and parents. And he does it, as I said, in a logical order, because it's first the relationship between husbands and the wives, and out of that flows the relationship between children and parents. You know the old story, love and marriage, love and marriage. That's the idea. And then comes what? What follows love and marriage? The baby carriage. (laughs) 
That's why Paul deals with it the way that he does. So he's talking here about these foundational relationships. He begins the chapter talking about love, and he makes it very clear love here is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. Somebody asked me that question last week when it talks about forgiving somebody. What if I don't feel, about, feel good about forgiving somebody? What if I don't feel like forgiving somebody? That's not the point. <laughs> what we need to understand is that feelings are fickle things. Just ask yourself, do you really think that Jesus, when he was hanging upon the cross, having had those nails driven through his hands and through his feet, that crown of thorns piercing his brow, that spear thrust into his side when he's thirsting and he asked for a drink and they gave him vinegar and the people were railing against him and jeering at him and telling him to come down from the cross if he really is the Son of God, do you really think he felt like forgiving people? It was a what? It was an act of the will. It was a choice. We have that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where Paul says, love is always patient, always kind. How many of you were always patient and always kind? Anybody? Here's one for the men I always say. Love is not easily angered. Every time I preach this at a wedding, I see some wife nudging her husband. Love is not easily angered. But then I say, here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now something becomes obvious when you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because Paul says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Everything else is going to pass away, he says, but love endures. But when Paul describes love, he makes it very clear it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not something that happens to us by chance or by accident, like falling into a flight of, falling down a flight of stairs or falling into a mud puddle. People will sometimes come to me and say, I've got problems in my marriage. And I said, what's the problem? They said, we just seem to be falling out of love. As though it's something that happens to you by chance or by accident. But that's not the biblical picture of love. Love is hard work. And anybody that's been married for any length of time can testify to that. The shine quickly wears off. And it takes a supernatural power. And that's what Paul is talking about here at the beginning of chapter 5. He's talking about love. That supernatural love. That agape love. That self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. The kind of love that God had for us, which we then, as God's people, are to have for each other. Which shows itself supremely in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then out of that relationship between husbands and wife, that is supposed to be a picture of Christ's relationship to His church, you have the picture of children and parents. Let me ask you the question. Why do you suppose God created the world? Do you think God needed us? There's nothing in Scripture that tells us that God needed us. He said, well, maybe it was lonely. Actually, the Trinity tells us that God was in perfect community. <laughs> well, I hear it and I agree with it at any rate. So, okay, that's quite all right. Technology is a wonderful thing sometimes. But one of the things that you'll notice is that what? God creates the world not because He has to, not because He's lonely. He has perfect fellowship. God creates the world. Why? Because He loves us. It's not because God needs anything. It's because He is love. For God so loved the world that He did what? He sent His Son. That's why God gives. It's because He loves. And you see this here in Ephesians chapter 5. Because God loves us, He gave us life. And He gave us each other. And because we love each other, we give. We give ourselves over to others too, don't we? To our spouse and we give ourselves over to our children. You see, it is a relationship of love that produces things. So that's the picture that you have in Ephesians. It is this picture of God loving us, us loving our spouse, 
and spouses loving their children. And if you've had children, you know you give your whole life over to them. It's not what you want. It's not what you are hoping for. It's doing what's best for them. Now, that's what you find in Ephesians chapter 5. Isn't it interesting then that right after Paul has been talking about our relationship with God, our relationship between husbands and wives, the relationship between children and parents, the very next thing he says, verse 10 is this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the very next thing that Paul says after he talks about these foundational relationships. He says you have to put on the full armor of God. Why? He said because you are going to be assaulted by the devil. So the foundations are being destroyed and they are being destroyed, as I said, from a number of forces and a number of factors and one of those is in a satanic attack. That's primarily what has happened in Western culture today. It is the devil who has been assaulting this most foundational of all institutions. And what does the attack look like? Well, the attack looks like a number of things. It not only comes from the devil, it comes from the world. For example, we speak of no-fault divorce. Now let me just tell you something. That is oxymoronic to say there is no-fault divorce. It's nobody's fault. It's always somebody's fault. But that's what the world would have us believe. Nobody is responsible, you see, for their own actions anymore. No-fault divorce. The attack is coming from the devil's attitudes when it comes to marriage. Not only that, but in some places, it is completely redefined marriage. Now, since time immemorial, marriage has been understood to be the relationship between a man and a woman. Now, whether or not you think that gay partnerships, for example, deserve to have all the same benefits as a heterosexual partnership, that's not really the question. That's why in Britain there's a differentiation between what they call marriage and what they call civil unions. Our Supreme Court, incidentally, completely changed the definition of marriage as it has been known since the beginning of time as the relationship between a man and a woman. We completely changed the definition. We didn't like the definition of something, so we completely changed it as though we stepped into an alternate reality. And that's what's happening in our culture One of the other things the church has done is it has failed to discourage unequally yoked marriages. One of the things the Apostle Paul says is that we should not be unequally yoked. We have failed to discourage missionary dating. I can't tell you how many uh, young women will come to me and say, well, I want you to know he's not a Christian. And I know what you're going to say before I even get it out. They say, I know what you're going to say. And they pause, and they wait for me to say something. And I don't say a word. And they said, well, aren't you going to say anything? I said, you already know what I'm going to say. One of the reasons why Paul says that believers and unbelievers shouldn't marry is because if you marry someone with whom you do not share the highest truth, incidentally, that's how C.S. Lewis described a true friend. A true friend, he said, is someone with whom you share the highest truth. Everybody else, to some degree or another, is an acquaintance. But if the most important thing in your life is not the most important thing in your spouse's life, then no matter how many things you have in common, because you do not share the highest truth, there's always going to be a breach. There's always going to be a division in your relationship. Doesn't that stand to reason? If the most important thing in my life, and it's not, but if the most important thing in my life is Republican politics, And my wife is a blue dog Democrat. (laughs) There's going to be a problem in our marriage if that's the most important thing for me and that's the most important thing for her. I always say that there are four C's to a successful marriage. Here they are, four C's to a successful marriage. The first one is commonality. You have to have certain things in common. Now, I know that they say opposites attract. And that may be to a certain degree. I'm type A. 
I'm sure that comes as a great revelation to many of you. I am type A. My wife is not. So there is a sense in which differences complement each other. But, as I said, if there are certain things that you do not share in common, if you disagree on everything, you're going to have a problem in your relationship. It's as simple as that. So I always say commonality, holding certain things in common, are essential to a good marriage. Commonality. Here's the second thing that is necessary for a relationship, a a good marriage. Communication. I say that 90% of the marriages that I meet are falling apart because the husband and the wife fail to communicate with each other. They don't realize that men and women are different. I'll give you an example. When we did our premarital counseling, we did it, this was years ago, here at St. Phil's, believe it or not. Uh, One of the assistants here uh, actually did the um, premarital counseling for us, Jay Fowler. Some of you may remember Jay Fowler. He did the premarital counseling for us because we knew him, we were friends. And I remember at one point he said, tell me about your first fight. And so we told him about our first fight. And it turned out to be our second fight. Just recounting the event. Because what happened was, Kristen told her version of the story, and she said, and he hurt my feelings. At which point I said, well, I didn't mean to hurt her feelings. And she looked at me and she said, but you hurt my feelings. At which point I said, but I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And her response was, but you did hurt my feelings. And Jay said, okay, okay, just everybody calm down. You go to your respective corner, and you go to your respective corner and wait for the bell. Well, one of the things I quickly discovered was that we were talking past each other. We weren't communicating. One of the things I had to realize, if we were going to be able to live together, is that there were going to be times when I would do things that hurt her feelings. Now, maybe I didn't intend to do it, but I needed to understand that I had. And one of the things that she needed to understand was that even though her feelings were hurt, I didn't intend to do it. And we had to learn to communicate. So communication is essential to a marriage. Commonality, communication. Here's the third thing, commitment. You have to remain committed to each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor. Not when it's convenient. In good times and in bad times. In sickness and in health. Until what? Until death you do part. How did the rock root meatloaf put it? I said, I'd love you to the end of time. So now I'm praying for the end of time. (laughs) So that I can end my time with you. That's what they said. But here's the fourth C to a successful marriage. And if you've got this one, here's the important thing, you've got all the others. The fourth C to a successful marriage, no surprise here, is Christ. If Christ is at the center of your marriage, the center of your family, the center of your life, then you're going to have the most important thing in common. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your relationship, and you understand that He gave Himself up for you, then you will be able to communicate with your spouse because you will be giving yourself up for them. And if Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, your marriage, your family, then you're going to be committed to each other. And you're going to find the supernatural grace to remain committed until death you depart and you won't have to be praying for the end of time. Those are the four things that are necessary for a successful marriage. But if you've got the fourth, you've got all the rest as well. So marriage is an important institution. It was created by God. It's a good institution. Paul says it represents Christ's relationship to His church. There is no institution on earth that is more sanctifying, that can more transform you into the image of Jesus Christ than the marriage relationship. Because one of the things you discover in a marriage is that it's not all about you. 
And that's what Jesus Christ teaches us. Who though He was in very nature God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself and took the form of a what? A servant. And became obedient unto death. He died to self and He lived for us. And if we're doing that, what a difference it makes. You know, in the old prayer book, and when I say the old prayer book, I'm talking about the 1662 prayer book, not the 1928. 1662 prayer book, the marriage vows were different. One of the things that the woman had to say was that she would love, honor, and obey her husband. And it was without qualification. Not obey him when he's worthy of being obeyed. The woman promised to love to honor, and to obey her husband. But here's what the husband promised. And with my body, I thee worship. Now what you have in those marriage vows is a beautiful picture, not of one person giving up everything for the happiness of another. It is a picture of two people mutually sacrificing for each other's happiness. I've often said I've never met a woman who wouldn't be willing to love, honor, and even obey her husband if she knew he worshipped the ground that she walked on. And every decision he made was made not with himself in mind, but with her and her happiness in mind. I actually shared that with a young couple. They were in the Marine Corps when I was in Beaufort. And when they came to be married, they said, we want the 1662 prayer book. And she was a major and he was a captain, so she actually outranked him. (laughs) And she said, but I'm willing to love, honor, and even obey him because I know he worships the ground I walk on. That is a beautiful picture, you see, of self-emptying. What is that a picture of? That is a picture of Jesus Christ who emptied Himself for us and for our salvation. He gave Himself. He died that you and I might live. He paid a debt He didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And He's saying that marriage is a picture of that relationship. The reason why Christ weeps, why God weeps when a marriage fails, is because the opportunity to show Christ's love to the world as Christian people fails when the marriage fails. So I want you to understand, we're going to turn and look at Matthew chapter 19. What I want you to understand is that God is not being hard on divorced people. But God is being high on marriage. We're living in a culture in which people are looking for excuses to get out of marriages. Jesus is saying we should be looking for every reason to stay in it. See, it's a very different perspective. So if you've been through a divorce, if you've had a failed marriage, I want you to just look at it from God's perspective. Jesus is not coming here to condemn you. He came here to save you. But He wants you to understand how important marriage is. And sometimes those who've had a failed marriage appreciate it far more than those who are living in a marriage in which they are unhappy, but they're sticking it out. So go back now to Matthew chapter 19 for a moment. first thing I want you to understand about Matthew chapter 19 is that Jesus' teaching here on marriage and divorce begins with a question from the Jewish religious leaders. Look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The tip-off here is they came up to him to test Now, this question is being posed not because they are looking for an honest answer. They are putting this question to Jesus because they want to do what? They want to test him. To the best of their ability, what they really want to do is discredit him in the eyes of the people. And the reason they thought they could do that is because there were conflicting views about marriage and divorce within Judaism in the first century. In particular, there were three views that were prevalent. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus. They know that these three views are prevalent out there within the culture and they come to Jesus to test Him because they know that if He chooses any one of those views, somebody's not going to like it. 
You know, they were always doing this sort of thing to Jesus. Always putting these questions before him in order to test him. And so this was a test. If he sided with the Qumran community, then the school of Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, they were going to be very critical of Jesus. On the other hand, if he sided with Rabbi Shammai, then Hillel would be against him and so forth. And so they thought they really had Jesus. How would he respond? Well, look at how Jesus responds. In chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying, you're so worried about what Hillel thinks, or Shammai thinks, or the people down there in Qumran think, what you really should be doing is taking a look at what God thinks. So let's go back to the very beginning of Genesis. Let's go back to creation and see what God says. And what God says is that He created the male and female. He created them to be a picture of the love that He has for the world. Therefore, what God has joined together, man should not separate. And Jesus sort of just leaves it hanging there. Now, when you first read it, you think, well, that's a pretty good answer. I mean, who can argue with the Scriptures? But I think the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, were anticipating that answer. Because they follow it up with another question. And what's the next question? Well then, why did Moses say that a man, if he was going to divorce his wife, should simply give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And how did Jesus respond to that? He said to them, it was because of the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. It's really interesting to notice how the Jewish religious leaders put this to Jesus. They said, you're telling us we shouldn't divorce, but Moses said that it was Legitimate. So, are you telling us that Moses was not authoritative for our lives? Moses, the great lawgiver? I want you to understand how duplicitous these people really were. What they do is they misquote the scripture here. Keep your finger in Matthew and turn back to the very beginning to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's not hard to find. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And we're going to begin at verse 1. Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the letter, the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, keep your finger there. I want you to flip back and forth. Look at Matthew 19 again, the way that the Pharisees put the question to Jesus. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. They make it sound that Moses commanded people to write a certificate and send her away. As though this was some sort of divine instruction. In other words, Moses gave permission for divorce. He actually gave his blessing to it. But go back and look at the original passage from Deuteronomy. When a man takes a wife 
and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and we'll come back to that in a minute, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if she goes and becomes another's wife, and the latter man hates her, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. One of the things that you'll notice is that this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not about divorce. This passage in Deuteronomy is about what? Remarriage. If somebody is divorced, then this is what must happen. The way that the Pharisees put it to Jesus is though Moses was saying divorce was okay. Moses was not saying it was okay. What Moses was saying is that sometimes in a broken and fallen world, terrible things happen. And if they happen, this is how you handle them. He's not saying you should contribute to it. That's why Jesus said it is because of the hardness of your heart that he said this. So the first thing that you notice is that the the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, were actually twisting the Scriptures to do what? To justify their own desires. Let me tell you something. We do that sometimes, don't we? We take the Scriptures and we twist them in order to attain our own end. Jesus replied, this is not about divorce, it's about remarriage. He says, and even then, Moses wrote this because of the hardness of your heart. And then he goes on to say this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, he commits adultery. Now that is the same clause, sometimes referred to as the exclusion clause, that we find in Deuteronomy. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, and divorces her as a consequence. Well, what is this exception? What does it mean when it says sexual immorality or indecency? Most people have taken that to mean if some sort of adulterous affair has taken place, then that is grounds for divorce. That's what most people seem to think that Jesus is talking about here. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Many people have thought, well, that's what Jesus is saying. If if one of the members of the relationship commits adultery, then the trust relationship has been so damaged that the husband or the wife, in this particular instance, has the right, not necessarily the obligation, but the right to what? To end the marriage. And if they end the marriage, they are therefore free. Now, how many of you have taught to believe that that's what the text has said? Nobody's been taught to believe that, that that's the exclusion? Most people are taught to believe that. I want to suggest to you that that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Here's where it gets interesting. If you're reading from the NIV, what it says is whoever divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness. How many have an NIV out there right now reading it? Is that what it says? Except for marital unfaithfulness? Or sexual infidelity or something like that? Sexual immorality? What is interesting is that the Greek word that is translated adultery, translated in my text as sexual immorality, is not the typical Greek word for adultery. The Greek word for adultery is the word moikeia. The Latin equivalent of it is the phrase ad ulterius torum, from which we get our word adultery, ad ulterius torum. It literally translated means to another's bed. So when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, if he had meant that sexual immorality or marital unfaithfulness was adultery, he would have used the word moikeia. That is not the word that Jesus uses there. Jesus uses an entirely different word. The Greek word porneia, from which we get our term pornography. The Latin equivalent of that is fornix. The fornix was the arch at the entrance to a temple. In the ancient world, most temples to the gods, whether it was to one of the Roman or the Greek gods, if you went up there to the temple to worship, it normally involved some sort of cultic prostitution. 
Those of you who have been with me to uh, Greece and you've been to Corinth, you've been to the site where that great temple was, the Acre Corinth above the city. And there were all kinds of terrible things that took place. At one point in Corinth, they said over a thousand cultic prostitutes plied their trade in just that one temple alone. And it normally took place at the entrance to the temple, the fornix. It's the word from which we get our term fornication. All right? So the Greek word is porneia. The Latin equivalent is fornix, from which we get our term fornication. And it does not mean the same thing as adultery. Fornication and adultery are two different things. In order for there to be an adultery, there has to be what? A marriage. Fornication is a reference to sexual behavior prior to marriage. So when this text translates, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and Jesus uses the word porneia there as opposed to the word moikeia, what that's telling us is that he's not talking about what we would call adultery. He's talking about something that took place before the marriage. And we have a great example of what that would be in the story of Jesus' own life. It's the story of Joseph and Mary. We're told that when Joseph discovered that Mary was expecting, and she was expecting by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be honest. If your intended comes home and tells you that she's expecting, and you said, who did this to you? And she said, it was God the Holy Spirit. How many of you are going to believe her? Well, Joseph didn't believe her either. You know, sometimes we think, well, we live in the 21st century. We know how these things work. Let me tell you something. They knew how these things worked in the first century too. And Joseph knew that was not right. So what did Joseph naturally assume? He naturally assumed that she had been unfaithful to him in their engagement. That Jesus is teaching about divorce here. In case some of you have been in a relationship where your spouse has been unfaithful, what I want you to notice is that Jesus' teaching on divorce in chapter 19 of Matthew does what? It follows immediately after his teaching on forgiveness. It may be a very difficult thing to forgive a spouse who has been unfaithful. But isn't that what God has done for us? Hasn't God forgiven us when we have been unfaithful? Haven't we been adulterers in terms of our loyalty to Him? I know we're a couple of minutes over, but if you'll just hang in there with me for a minute so we can wrap this up. Some final thoughts and then a story. One of the things that Jesus makes very clear here is that this standard of chastity before marriage, faithfulness in marriage with no thought of divorce, he makes it very clear, this is a standard for the church. It is not a standard for the world. He understands that people who do not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit are incapable of living like this. So he makes it very clear, this is the standard for the church. Here's the second thing to remember. If you have been married and divorced, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Divorce is not it. Here's the third thing. What about unequally yoked marriages? Paul is very clear. If you are dating somebody and they are not a believer, you should not marry them because you will not share the highest truth. And you should not enter into the relationship with them thinking that you can change them. Conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit, not the work of our efforts. And here's the fourth thing to remember. God does not relax His standard on divorce. So what about a person who has been married, divorced, and remarried? Well, what you do need to know is that God, in Romans chapter 8, says that He will redeem situations. And I've seen that. 
I've seen people who were not Christians and they got divorced and then they remarried as Christians and their marriages were blessed from the Lord. That does not mean that the Lord is lowering His standard. What it simply means is that God is a God of redemption and He can redeem the situation. But as Christians, you and I should be desperately concerned for the state of marriage in our culture. So, a story. In the Old Testament, there is a prophet by the name of Hosea. And Hosea was commanded by God to marry a beautiful woman. Her name was Gomer. That's the only thing that was unattractive about her, was her name. So picture this magnificent, beautiful woman. And the Lord comes and He says, Hosea, I'm going to give you a wife. She is a beautiful wife. And she's going to be yours. Now, at that point, Hosea is thinking to himself, good news. I mean, it's all right if you're married to an unattractive woman, but it's much nicer if you're married to an attractive woman. That's what he's thinking. All right. But the Lord says, there's going to be another part to this, Hosea. The woman is going to be beautiful, and you are going to fall madly in love with her, but, listen to this, she is going to be unfaithful to you. At which point Hosea says, well, maybe not. Let's, let's just not do that. And the Lord says, no, Hosea, you're my prophet. And what I want you to do is to take this woman who is beautiful and she's going to be unfaithful to you, but you are going to remain faithful to her. And your relationship with your wife is going to be a picture of my relationship to my people. Israel is beautiful to me. She is a bride, but she is unfaithful. And so what happens is that Hosea takes Gomer as his wife. And at first, the marriage seems to go okay. But she's so attractive, and she has such designs on success and wealth and fame and all of that sort of thing, that before long, sure enough, according to God's prophetic word, she falls in with another man. A man who she thinks can take care of her much better than her husband can. And she goes off with that man. And for a while, he does take care of her. But, you know, it's often the case with people who are very wealthy that they're always looking for the next big thing. They're not satisfied with anyone or anything for very long, and this man is not satisfied with Gummer for very long. And so he throws her to the side. But she falls in with another man who can't take care of her quite as well as the first man, but still better, she thinks, than her husband can. And so she has a relationship with him. She goes through a whole succession of relationships until eventually she descends to such a low place that she is in debt. And in the ancient world, when a person was in debt, you paid off that debt by becoming a slave. And so the story in the Bible says that Gomer was going to be sold at auction as a slave to pay off her debt because she had been spending all of this money going further and further into debt one man after another, one man after another. Meanwhile, her husband, Hosea, has been pleading for her to come back, but she will not do it. And so eventually she is brought in. In the ancient world, slaves were sold on the auction block like this, and they were sold naked. And so just imagine what that was like for a woman. In the presence of all of these gawking men, all of her clothes are stripped off her and she's commanded to turn around so everybody can examine her. She's humiliated in the face of the public. But she's still a beautiful woman. She's not as beautiful as she once was, but she's still a lovely woman. And the bidding starts. And the bidding goes up and up and up. And the auctioneer is amazed at the price that this woman is going to carry. Just when he thinks that he's gotten the top price and he's ready to drop the gavel, a voice from the back offers an exorbitant amount of money in the ancient world. And nobody can believe it. They all turn around to see who would offer. I mean, she was beautiful. Not that beautiful. They turn around to see who it was who was selling everything that he had to purchase this woman. And they turn around and Gomer turns around as well and she sees Hosea standing there, selling everything that he has to purchase her. And the gavel falls. And Hosea comes forward, taking off his own cloak. 
He wraps it around her shoulders. And He takes her out of the room and He turns to her and He said, Now you belong to Me and I belong to you and we will be faithful to each other. Now what that story is, is a picture of what God has done for us. We have been unfaithful. We have been adulterous to Him over and over again with other loves. And we were in debt to sin and to death and to judgment. And God, at an enormous cost, the cost of everything that He had, the cost of His own Son, came in and bought us back. And He clothed us with His righteousness. And He leads us out and He says, Now, you belong to Me. You will be faithful to Me and I will be faithful to you. If that's what God has done for us, then Jesus said, How can we not do it for each other?